Well, if you're just joining us, Starship just experienced what we call a rapid unscheduled disassembly or a rut during ascent. But now this was a development test. This is the first test flight of Starship. And the goal was to gather the data and as we said, clear the pad and get ready to go again. So you never know exactly what's gonna happen, but as we promised, excitement is guaranteed. And Starship gave us a rather spectacular end to what was truly an incredible test thus far. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. In the United States, this was a jam-packed week in the space domain. While much of the civil, business, and defense space leadership was gathering in Colorado Springs, Colorado for the annual space symposium, about a thousand miles to the south and east in Boca Chica, Texas, SpaceX made two attempts to launch its massive 28-story, two-stage, super-heavy rocket and Starship spacecraft prototype. The Starship launch system uses 33 engines. It's the largest ever built and one that uniquely uses methane for propellant. Elon Musk, who founded SpaceX just over 21 years ago, his vision for this spacecraft is to be fully reusable and to lift up to 150 metric tons of cargo for interplanetary travel. Now on Monday, the first attempt was scrubbed with just about 40 seconds left on the countdown clock. But then on Thursday, SpaceX got it off the ground. It cleared the tower without incident. It sailed through Max-Q. That make-or-break point when every launch vehicle experiences the most dynamic pressure. As of right now, we are awaiting stage separation, where Starship should separate from the Super Heavy booster. Yeah, Kate, right now it looks like we saw the start of the flip, but obviously we're seeing from the ground cameras the entire Starship stack continuing to rotate. We should have had separation by now. Obviously, this is uh, does not appear to be a nominal situation. Yeah, it does appear to be spinning, but I do want to remind everyone that everything after clearing the tower was icing on the cake. Those cheers came after what's called a rapid unscheduled disassembly or RUD. Essentially, the flight director figured this was as far as this test could go and hit the self-destruct button. Those cheers didn't just happen inside the confines of the SpaceX facility in Hawthorne, California. They rippled across the space community and were heard in Colorado Springs for here was a company and the Federal Aviation Authority which signed off on the Starship test embracing California calculated risk to test what is likely our best way forward to becoming an interplanetary species. This test is also a real sign of the times on how fast the space domain and ecosystem are evolving. 
We're going to hear from the president of Raytheon Space and C2 Systems, Dave Broadbent, about the pace of change and what this prime contractor is doing to avoid the Space Force CSO's frozen middle a little later in the episode. But first, I wanted to catch up with Casey Durad, who was both in Boca Chica and in Colorado Springs this week, and ask her why, despite the rapid unscheduled disassembly, you know, why the cheering? Here's our conversation. Hi, Casey. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Hi, Laura. It's great to be back. Casey, you're an engineer and an alumnus of the Air Force Research Laboratory's Space Vehicles Directorate. But now you lead a space business incubator. Tell us a little bit about you and your organization, New Space New Mexico. Okay, Laura, I lead New Space New Mexico, and uh, our organization is a nonprofit that is working to help accelerate the space industry innovation by both uniting and igniting space. And that's where we bring people, bring people together. We lead national level uh, workshops and forums to help accelerate the innovation and then we also have uh, things like our uh, incubator-like programs and resources that space companies can come and co-innovate with us. Now this Sunday you were in Boca Chica, Texas for SpaceX's first attempt to launch Starship which was on Monday. What was it like as a human, as an engineer, to stand next to the biggest ever rocket prototype? I mean, you know, it's roughly 28 stories tall. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. We got in Sunday and were able to go over to the Starbase where they manufacture and they set this up. And then visit the launch site and be able to be within like 100 feet of this amazing starship. And it was just crazy as we realized what this is going to do to be able to get, you know, so much cargo, people getting to the moon, getting to Mars and reusable. It's going to, you know, change access to space you know, this is a huge inflection point. It is amazing for our U.S. space industry and what this will do. And I am just so proud of Elon Musk and SpaceX to be able to just really push forward and do these, you know, high risk things. Space is hard. We Monday morning, you know, we were there at the beach um, ready to watch the launch. And a um, couple, I think a couple uh, minutes before the launch time, it was scrubbed. And the the group that went with us, uh, we all were just still so excited because we thought, you know, it is going to launch at some point. And we were right there and we were able to see it firsthand and just amazing. Now, after that first launch attempt was scrubbed and that was due to a frozen uh, pressurization valve. You came up to Colorado and joined the rest of us in the space community in Colorado Springs, where I saw you at the space symposium conference and just hours before the conference closed, SpaceX launched Starship, getting it off the pad and up to an apogee of roughly 39 kilometers 
before the flight director pressed the self-destruct button. Now, you know, in your decades of experience, there would have been calls for an investigation and sniping about how having to self-destruct this launch system was a bad thing or a failure. But that really wasn't the case this time. People are celebrating. I mean, why is that? What's fundamentally changed in the space community? Well, I think that we see that, you know, space is hard. This kind of a game changer isn't going to happen on its first try. But the launch, I think, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, it was, it didn't work, but it's still, it launched the launch, the whole launch uh, platform was still intact. Um, It made it up there and it, okay. So it didn't do the full mission, but you know, it made it off of the launch platform and that was huge. That's a huge accomplishment. And you know, the, it was a space test. It was a test flight. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't meant to go into orbit. They were just testing out some of this. And then now they'll go back to the drawing board. They'll have a lot of data. And I think that's what people see through the years is, you know, space is hard, but it's getting easier. And it's by risk takers like SpaceX really uh, out there proving that these things can be done. And that, I mean, that Starship is huge. And just think what it's going to open up the access to space that that will open is going to be amazing for all this, all these commercial space industries, these private companies being able to, you know, we're not just thinking about getting into space. We're talking about starting to operate and be in space and do things from space. This is going to open that door. And do you think maybe perhaps it's also more of an acceptance of risk that, you know, if we want to do big things, we have to actually embrace the iterative process. And that iteration does mean risk. Iteration when you're dealing with rockets does mean, well, explosions. It does, yes. Like I said, they did not finish their full mission that was planned with this flight test, but they did prove it getting off of the launch pad and then they you know they had a couple of their uh raptor motors weren't firing correctly or weren't working correctly so now they could go back to the drawing board but they have you know they have some great data and the next iteration is gonna do better and then better and then better and then we're gonna it's gonna be normal i mean when we were over at the starbase you saw there was probably like seven or eight of these starships you could see being manufactured. So they're ready to keep going with the next iteration and the next iteration. Now, before I let you go, Casey, I want to give a plug for next month's State of the Space Industrial Base Workshop. When is it happening and who's going to be there? Okay, well, it's 15 through 18 May in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You could register by going to newspacenm.org. And we plan to have sort of an opening industrial conference along with the space state of the space industrial base workshop, which are sort of these working groups where we uh, engage industry, academia, government to really look through how do we, what do we need to do to make sure our U.S. industrial base is strong. So we have some speakers from the Space Force from the White House. We have a space 
companies come. Last year, we had 85 different space companies uh, participating in speaking, and we have investor groups, uh, government, like I said, it um, it's a participatory conference. You know, we have some great keynotes and some great panels lined up, but it's also where uh, we tell the, the folks that participate, come and plan on rolling up your sleeves and helping give inputs to, you know, how do we keep our nation's industrial base strong? Casey, thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, Laura, for having me. I love the Downlink podcast and you're a great podcast leader. In Colorado Springs at the Space Symposium, which was held at the Broadmoor Resort Complex, defense leaders were concerned about the space industrial base, about its ability to meet the rapidly evolving security landscape. It was the theme of the U.S. Space Force Chief of Space Operations, General Chan Salzman's appearance there. From the years prior. This sense of community and connection and continuity is powerful. It's almost a sense of family. And I personally take great comfort in that family-like environment and its continuity. But then I start to worry, as military leaders are paid to do. You see, it occurs to me that this very comfort that we enjoy in this continuity can easily lead to complacency. Not the kind of complacency that grows out of apathy, no. This crowd is passionate about space. I see no signs of apathy at all. I'm worried about a far more subtle form of complacency, one that grows out of the comfort of continuity, the comfort of our expertise, the comfort of our successes. What we have done and how we have done it has worked and worked well. But I fear we think it will work well forever. This form of complacency might allow us to think that our tried and true methods, mindsets, will be sufficient to address new challenges. Or perhaps we think the challenges aren't new, not fundamentally different. Perhaps we think we're just riding along a predictable linear evolution in the space domain and that we can adjust in the margins as we go and keep pace. Well, from my perch, I believe this is incorrect. In my estimation, now is not the time to allow for any measure of complacency the CSO then gave examples of the anti-satellite weapons, or ASATs, which this podcast has covered in prior episodes, like nesting doll satellites, cyber attacks, and directed energy weapons. But he also put the space industry on notice that the young officers coming up in the ranks, some of which will become acquisition officers, are impatient for change. Our young leaders get it. Our newest lieutenant colonels, even some of our current squadron commanders, were not on active duty when the Chinese conducted the 2007 ASAT test. About 25% of Space Force officers and about one-third of the enlisted cadre have never served in any other branch of the military. Space Force is all they know. These guardians do not carry around the same baggage from earlier eras of space operations. A contested, congested domain is their normal. And they wonder why the institutions are holding on to old methods and mindsets. By now, most of us have heard me talk about three lines of effort. To field combat-ready forces, to amplify the guardian spirit, and partner to win. But this is just a framework to focus the organ and organize our activities. The real work is to go about these activities in fundamentally different way, 
acknowledging that new problems require new answers derived from new thinking, old way of doing business will come up short. To enable the Space Force to be successful in this new era, we must aggressively dismantle old processes and procedures. For those of you in blue tapes or those that interact with Space Force offices, if you haven't challenged your assumptions, your timelines, how you assess mission assurance, how you do verification and validation, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're a part of the frozen middle. The CSO said we are now in the, quote, exponential era. So how does business meet that challenge, especially the prime contractors? Just over a month ago, Dave Broadbent was given the reins of Raytheon's space division called Space and C2 Systems. The division has a number of awards from the Space Development Agency. And in March, it won a $250 million contract to deliver seven satellites and assist in launch and ground operations for the agency's missile tracking constellation in low Earth orbit. So when I was given the opportunity to speak with Dave, I wondered if all of this success was making this prime contractor a little too comfortable or a little too close to that frozen middle. Here is our conversation. Hello, Dave. Welcome to the Downlink Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Dave, you have been with Raytheon for just over two decades and have held a variety of positions from managing supply chain to quality control and also operations. And now you're kind of in a new situation. Take a moment and introduce yourself. Okay. Yeah, it has been, uh, it has been quite the journey. Uh, so obviously started over in the UK with Raytheon UK. Um, 22 years ago, as you as you rightly characterized, uh, started on the um, on the engineering side. So I'm a mechanical engineer by education. Um, so moved through um, Vickers Defence Systems in the UK as an engineering graduate and, tra- and then trainee, uh, and then quickly realised that I probably wasn't going to cut it in the in the engineering discipline, and moved over more onto the commercial side of the house. So that's when I really uh, dived in on contracts, supply chain, offsets export import control, a lot of various other uh, activities. So did that for a few years, uh, ended up actually heading up all of the, uh, the export business for, for Vickers Defense Systems in the UK uh, to include establishing supply chains in, in Europe and the Far East. Um, and then Raytheon uh, came knocking on the door. So uh, when I moved to Raytheon, I was really kind of working on the, uh, the international side of, uh, of their business really on uh, land systems and, uh, and, and uh, seaborne systems. Uh, did that for a couple of years and then uh, was approached by Raytheon in the US uh, for what was going to be a one-year assignment. And that was, again, back in 2001. Um, and, and here we are, you know, 22 years later. So when I came to the US, it was really focusing on, again, a lot of the export business that they had, naval, seaborne, land systems. Um, so did that for a few years. Uh, moved back onto um, uh, the sort of contracts and supply chain side of the house um, and then up through the corporate organization. Uh, and then uh, was given the assignment to go and work for um, uh, the chief executive, Tom Kennedy at the time, uh, when we were acquiring WebSense and, uh, and worked through the formation of, uh, of Forcepoint. So that gave me some experience on the cyber side of things. Um, and then, uh, then IIS, Raytheon Intelligence Information Services in Dulles, Virginia, approached me to go and head up their contracts and supply chain organization. So I moved over there in about 2015. Um, that's really when I started to get onto the space side of things and really got interested in what was going on on the ground side, the intel side, how everything connected together. 
and I found it incredibly intriguing. Um, and so when UTC uh, and Raytheon merged back in 2020, and the opportunity to become the COO of the Space Command and Control business came, uh, I grasped it with both hands. And so really, the last three years has been bringing those, uh, the, bringing the Raytheon airspace capabilities together from both the overset, overhead side and the ground side. Um, and uh, that kind of brought me to about six weeks ago, which is when I was appointed as president of the business. So that is the quick whistle-stop tour of, uh, of my background. Well, that's quite a tour. <laughs> I have to ask, though. I mean, did you initially think that you were going to be involved in space? I mean, and, and what part of England are you from? I mean, uh, yeah, how so, do, I mean, so growing up in in uh, in Leeds, which is in Yorkshire in England, I certainly did not envision that I would be running a, a four billion dollar space uh, and intelligence business. You know. Raytheon is known as a defense prime contractor, but what is Raytheon space and C2, which is really command and control, but for the uninitiated, I mean, really, you know, what does all that mean? What does it mean? Good question, uh, because it can be confusing. And the way that I simplify it is to think about the business in, in three layers. The first layer is proliferated space. And so you should think of that as larger constellations, um, smaller satellites that are connected and that provide um, threat resilient capabilities uh, and the ability to respond to threats on a, on a highly accelerated uh, timeline. So that's everything that, for example, we're doing with the SDA, the missile warning, uh, missile tracking capabilities that we have. And, uh, and we sell a lot of componentry and payloads uh, optical uh, payloads, that sort of thing, into the proliferated space uh, segment. So that's about 10, call it 10% of our business right now. The second part of the business is what we call exquisite space. And that's some of the things that Raytheon has traditionally done, which is very, very high performance, very specialized sensors for specialized missions. So things like space protection, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, that sort of thing. And that's really about, call it 20% uh, of our business. And then the mainstay of our business actually is the exquisite ground. So, so think of that as the, uh, the capability that we have to control the satellites and the constellations. And when I say control, you know, it's the mission management, the command and control, it's getting the data down from the satellites, it's processing it, making sense of it, and then providing actionable data to, uh, to the users. So that's about 70% of the, of the revenue. So I think of, I think of the business in those, three, in those three layers, if that makes sense. Oh, it does, and thank you so much for that. You know, you've got a number of really interesting space and defense programs going on with US Space Force, the Space Development Agency, which is uh, SDA, as was what was just mentioned before, and DARPA. And there was an announcement this week that there's a partnership with Spider Oak. Now, if you had to choose one that really captures your imagination, mm -hmm. which one would that be and why? What does it do? Yeah, really for me, it's, uh, it's the SDA award uh, on tracking uh, Tranche 1. That is something that, for a number of different reasons, from the mission and the fact that it's so critical given the threats that are out there right now, um, which, which really, really attracts me uh, and intrigues me, to the acquisition model. I mean, for many, many years, 
the US government has really struggled in terms of, I think, accelerating the pace of acquisition so that we can respond in a time frame that is relevant relative to the speed of the threat. And I'm just, I'm so in awe of what SDA has done over this past three years with its tranche-based acquisition approach, where it's really compressing the acquisition timeframes and, and saying, look, you know, we're gonna go with 95% solutions. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, recompete every two years and we're going to spiral um, the development and capability of, uh, of, our, of those constellations to address that missile warning uh, and missile defense mission, which is so critical to our nation. So for me, again, the mission and the acquisition cycle, I think, is incredible. And I think it's revolutionizing the way that the US is actually defending its nation and acquiring in the space domain. So I think it's incredible. And just to be clear, though, you're talking about the tranche one that was announced in March. Correct. Well, give us a little bit more of the numbers here. I mean, how many satellites? How large will they be? And what part of your business is actually doing the manufacturing of that? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, this is an initial uh, tranche for seven satellites. Um, it's going, they're going to be um, manufactured and produced in our space systems business, which is based in El Segundo, California. And, um, you know, it really sets us up because, as I mentioned, because we have this, these what are called two-year tranche acquisition cycles, um, and, uh, and SDA has, been, has made very clear that relative to uh, the tracking layer, um, uh, you know, the, the number of missiles that are going to be acquired over the next several years is in the several hundreds. So we're not guaranteed all of that business, of course. Um, but I think, um, you know, with the capabilities that we're going to be deploying under the tracking tranche one that, we've just, that we were just awarded, um, we're going to be able to demonstrate the credibility that we have to perform that, uh, that mission. Uh, we'll be, uh, we're actually going to be um, using a sensor that we developed under the Blackjack program called the Wide Field of View Sensor. It's a single sensor that can perform both the um, missile detection and missile track, so it's very unique. But if we can demonstrate the credibility of that, uh, that payload, I think there's incredible opportunity for us on the future, uh, future tranches with SDA. So it's a, it's a really, really significant business opportunity for us. You know that the view of defense prime contractors is a picture of fat and comfortable, right? Okay, and I'm using these words very particularly because earlier today, the Space Force Chief of Operations said his biggest challenge and concern for the future is complacency. That's comfort and continuity, comfort and success, comfort and capability. And it's pretty fair to say that Raytheon has had, well, a continuous stream of $200 million plus contracts. So, you know, there is comfort and continuity, definitely comfort and, and capability. So what's Raytheon doing to get a wee bit, let's say, uncomfortable? I mean, aren't you going through kind of a restructuring right now? Yeah, we, we certainly are. And, and frankly, this goes back to why I'm, I'm such a huge supporter of what SDA is doing. I mean, that change in the acquisition cycle is a huge disruptor to Raytheon uh, and to many of our traditional Space Prime competitors. Also, the fact that there's been, I think, a lowering of some of the barriers to entry relative to some of the commercial players in space has also been a major disruptive factor in his accelerating change. I mean, let's call it what it is. Raytheon, and again, many of our traditional uh, defense and space primes, we were constructed around sole source 
classified cost plus businesses and five to seven year acquisition cycles. Those markets no longer exist. So we've had to take a very hard look at ourselves and talk about what do we need to do, not just from a product perspective, obviously, uh, but from an operations footprint, skill set perspective, how we're relooking at our, our management um, uh, personnel and, uh, and our processes, our, uh, our quality and mission assurance and production processes, and really driving to a far more efficient uh, model of, of uh, producing uh, our capabilities and our products. So, um, so that's all been going on in the background. As you mentioned, we are going through a, a major restructuring at the moment. And um, the primary purpose of the restructure, and that's really bringing together the, the two existing Raytheon businesses, Raytheon Missiles and Defense, and then Raytheon Intelligence and Space. They will be reconstituted as a single Raytheon business. And again, primary purpose of doing that is to simplify our business from a customer perspective. Again, let's, let, let's be uh, frank about the fact that there's a lot of cross-cutting and overlapping capabilities that existed in Raytheon. Um, across those two legacy businesses. When you bring in Collins Aerospace, that makes the picture even more complex. So we found ourselves in a situation where an incredible amount of, of mission and product capability, but we've got to simplify it. And again, part of that process of simplifying it is not only making it easier for our customers to, to manage and acquire, it allows us to look for synergies internally where we can um, really pool our resources around IRAD, um, and make sure we're driving efficiencies and scale into what we do in a way that we haven't done before. So we really are using it as the opportunity and a catalyst to prepare for uh, the move to a fixed price competitive environment where there are many non-traditional players. So again, I think a huge amount of disruption, but it's incredibly positive disruption. And we're absolutely um, dedicated uh, to making the changes that uh, that are necessary internally to make sure that we can deliver on the mission. I mean, and that, that's what it's about at the end of the day, is uh, is making sure that we're keeping the nation safe and providing the products and capabilities that keep us ahead of the uh, ahead of the threat. You know, the CSL also said that in space, the rate of change is accelerating, which is something that you also just mentioned, and that quote, we're in an exponential part of the growth curve. Unquote. And now in the recent past, Raytheon and your competitor Boeing acquired businesses to meet customer demand, to meet these kinds of growth, to meet, like, for instance, instead of the large, you know, satellites that were exquisite, you got Blue Canyon and they make microsats and small sats. How are you going to continue to meeting that growth? Are you going to continue looking for acquiring other businesses? Is this something you're going to do internally? Or are you going to do it as a mix? Yeah, I think it's going to be a combination of different things. As you mentioned, over this last two years, we've really expanded the portfolio with the acquisition of Blue Canyon Technologies and with Seeker Engineering. Both businesses bring not just differentiated capability and product, but they also bring a culture and an atmosphere of innovation that we're really trying to leverage in terms of changing the culture within the traditional uh, Raytheon business. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a combination of acquisitions, as we have shown with, the, with BCT and Seeker, and then we're going to be looking for, for partnership. Um, frankly, again, a lot of discussion that we've had here at Space Symposium over this last couple of days has been um, meeting with our, some of our um, traditional space 
based primes, um, but some of the non-traditionals as well, and talking about how we can bring our technologies and capabilities together uh, with some of the non-traditional uh, partners um, and some of the traditionals who are investing outside of their traditional realms and say, you know, what is the opportunity space for us here? So I think that's also going to be a big part of what we do is, is um, looking for those strategic partnerships. The third thing, and this kind of goes to, to what I mentioned about the acquisition, sorry, not the acquisition, but the, um, the, the re-merger of Raytheon, is pooling research and development capability. So right now, you know, we've got a very, I'll say, this, there's, there are silos of, of um, research and development going on across the business. We know we've got to get a lot more efficient um, in terms of the deployment of that IRAD. It was one of the original um, uh, founding principles of the, uh, the merger with UTC, uh, but we've never really realized the full potential of that. So there's going to be a lot more efficiency driven into the IRAD process, and I think a, a, just a much more focused IRAD process really recognizing where the market is going and aligning our investments more closely with the, with what that future looks like. So I think it's going to be a, a combination of those three, those three things. First, when you say non-traditional mm -hmm. that you've been speaking with, give us an example. Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, a good one would be Maxar, for example. You know, uh, not a traditional uh, A&D um, business, uh, but a business that is very focused in terms of its uh, commercial satcom capability. And we have been partnered with, with Maxar uh, over this last uh, several years in terms of the, um, uh, the worldview capability. So, so there, you know, we're looking at different business models in terms of not just selling our product, but how do we monetize the constellations and the data that we're bringing down from the constellations? Those are very, very different business models and capability sets than the traditional A&Ds um, you know, have been uh, used to working with. Um, and so that would just be one example of where we're kind of looking a little bit outside of the, uh, the traditional box, if you like, uh, at how we can take our capabilities, combine that with uh, just some incredible commercial uh, capabilities and technologies and look for different business models to provide capability better, faster and cheaper. In your near-term sort of strategy, are you looking at any other non-traditional strategies to to meet this new space 3.0 space renaissance? In the near term, I would say the big focus for us right now is, um, you know, we have been focused the last three years on trying to pivot to a, a space mission prime position. That hasn't yielded the results that we were looking for, so we're really focused now on, um, on a merchant strategy. So, um, Explain you know, what that means exactly, yeah, those so, for, so, for who are not really in business. Sure. So the last, last, again, three or four years, we were trying to move um, up the proverbial food chain um, and, and take on uh, space mission prime contracts. We're going to use the SDA as the as the catalyst for that uh, that process. Um, again, frankly, until the Polar Award, which was uh, just in February this year, it, it didn't yield the results that we were looking for. And when we stepped back as a business and said, "Why is that?" You know, we had to be we had to be honest with ourselves in terms of did we have the heritage, did we have the execution uh, credibility, um, and frankly, you know, in terms of space mission prime credibility, we didn't have the heritage. Um, and one of the SDA's uh, key criteria has been, you know, you've got to you've got to be able to demonstrate the reliability in terms of in terms of being able to uh, get space vehicles on orbit. So, um, so we've stepped back from that. 
uh, we're really going to be focused on, on focused on providing our um, products and capabilities out of BCT and Seeker to other space mission primes. So whether it's the buses, whether it's the uh, the processors, um, or whether it's componentry, so star trackers, uh, stability and attitude mm-hmm. capabilities, and so on and so forth, they will be provided on a merchant vendor basis to a, a, a number of different primes. Also on the on the payload side, again going back to the blackjack wide field of view, once we've been able to demonstrate the capability under the SDA contract that we currently have. We're looking to to really double down on that capability and provide it to a number of different potential space primes. So it's a strategy where, again, um, we're going to be working with other space primes versus end customers and really trying to uh, focus on scale, repeatability, um, and speed, given all the other conversation that we had about, uh, about the mission and the way that the market is changing right now. Dave, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.